It's a sad fact of life that there will always be people who seem to have as their goal in life to be as critical of others as they can possibly be. Often, those who are doing the criticizing really don't have a clue to do that which they find lacking in other people, but that doesn't stop them. But just as often, critics, I think, are critical because they have an essential lack of self-esteem or maybe even jealousy toward the person who's actually accomplishing something. You don't really know what to do sometimes when it comes to criticism. Some people advise you to do nothing, to ignore it. Others will advise you to fight back. I have a very dear friend who happens to be one of the leading people in the world in his field. And I remember he got a letter that was just scathing with criticism toward him. Very long letter, and the person I think intended for him to answer back point by point. And my friend, using what I think was wisdom at the time, just answered back, you may be right, signed my friend's name. Brilliant, I thought. On another occasion, though, in, in terms of fighting back, my, my friend didn't fight back, obviously, but I remember the story he's told about when Moody was in England one time doing one of his presentations, and you need to know that Moody was the Billy Graham of his generation. Moody finished his presentation, and somebody came up to him and said, I really don't care for your gospel presentation. And Moody said, well, how do you give the gospel? And the guy says, well, I don't really. And Moody said, well, if you'll pardon me, I like the way I do it better than the way you don't do it. <laughs> so that was witty. It's a challenge to know when to defend yourselves against unfair criticism and when to just let it go. There is a time and a place for both. In the situation that Paul found himself in the study of 2 Corinthians toward the end, chapters 10 through 13, Paul felt compelled to defend himself for this reason, because there was more at stake than his own personal feelings, because his reputation was so tightly tied in with his message. If someone was to destroy his reputation unfairly as they were, he felt compelled, and he had to defend himself. But I want you to notice this morning how he does it, and this is our key idea for today. Notice how Paul defends himself. Yes, he will use some divinely sanctioned sarcasm. But in the end, he's still doing it in love and because he loves them. Remember that. He's going to get strong with them. And sometimes you may have to get strong as well. But don't forget the love aspect. The Apostle Paul tells us later that we're supposed to speak the truth in love. And that's true when we're preaching the Word of God. That's true when we're defending Jesus in the public arena. But it's also true if we're going to defend ourselves. It's not restricted to just teaching the Word. We're to speak the truth in love even when somebody has very unfairly criticized us. And when somebody assassinates our character, again, unfairly, some people have it coming to them, but when they assassinate it unfairly, that's a hurtful thing. But Paul is letting us know here by example that we must defend ourselves in love when we feel compelled to do it. We speak the truth in love, we defend ourselves in love. And now, in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, beginning in verse 11, the text reads this way. Our text for this morning is verses 11 through 18. I want to read it all through once so you get the idea, the big idea of the passage. Then we're going to break down a few things that I think will be germane to helping us understand that big picture. In verse 11 of chapter 12 of 2 Corinthians, Paul says this, I've become foolish. You yourselves compelled me. Actually, I should have been commended by you. For in no respect was I inferior to the most eminent apostles. Some of your Bibles may say the super apostles. 
even though I'm a nobody. The signs of a true apostle were performed among you with all perseverance by signs and wonders and miracles. For in what respect were you treated as inferior to the rest of the churches, except that I myself did not become a burden to you? Forgive me this wrong. Here for the third time I'm ready to come to you, and I will not be a burden to you. For I do not seek what is yours, but you. For children are not responsible to save up for their parents, but parents for their children. And I will most gladly spend and be expended for your souls. For if I love you the more, am I to be loved less? But be that as it may, I did not burden you myself. Nevertheless, crafty fellow that I am, I took you in by deceit. Certainly, I have not taken advantage of you through any of those whom I have sent to you, have I? I urged Titus to go and sent the brother with him. Titus did not take advantage of you, did he? Did we not conduct ourselves in the same spirit and walk in the same steps? You know, it's tough on a person when the people that ought to be defending you not only don't defend you, but sometimes even join in the chorus of the criticism. And that's what's happened in Corinth as Paul closes out this second letter to the Corinthians. You remember there were four letters. The first one that we, we don't know much about, it just says, don't associate with immoral people. Then there's 1 Corinthians. It's an answer to a series of questions that had been asked him when he was over in Ephesus. The third letter we don't have, which was a painful letter, a sorrowful letter. And then this is the fourth letter. So we have numbers two and four that we call them First and Second Corinthians. I hope that didn't confuse you too much. But that's why Paul references other letters here. So as we come to the conclusion of the final letter, 2 Corinthians, or the fourth letter that he wrote, Paul finds himself in a position of defending himself because other people that should have done it didn't do it. You see, the people in Corinth should have praised Paul when he was criticized by these false teachers that had come in. But they didn't have the courage to do it. And on top of that, not only do they not praise him, but they join in the chorus of the criticism. Now this is Paul who had spent his life for the Lord Jesus Christ and had poured himself out for these people. It wasn't easy doing what he did, and they should have stood up for him, but apparently very few, if any, did. Now, I want you to see that Paul is pained when he writes this. And he does use some divinely sanctioned sarcasm. You can see it here. Forgive me this wrong. Oh, crafty fellow that I am, I deceived you. But all along, he wants them to, to know for sure that he still loves them. Sometimes people look at public figures like the Apostle Paul or maybe a, in our day a politician or an athlete or an entertainer, and we view these people almost as if they're figures of people and not real people that have feelings of their own and families of their own, kids of their own, a mother of their own, a father of their own, children, friends. These are real people. Just because they're a politician on the television and we might never meet them, it doesn't mean we should have free reign to assassinate their character unfairly. But sometimes people do, especially in our culture, especially in this celebrity ship culture. You see, there's a downside to the celebrity ship culture. And that is they could build you up but they can also tear you down just as quickly. And you know what? The media, and I'm including People Magazine and us and entertainment and all those entertainment tonight, all those things, they don't care if it's a story about a person on the way up or a story about the person on the way down. They just care about ratings. And so they're really into the criticism thing. Some of those shows are just criticism. And it's pervaded our culture and it's seeping into the church too. But it's not the first time. 
It happened here as well. But some people criticize well-known people unmercifully. And Paul is not really in favor of that here. I've become foolish. You yourselves compelled me. Paul writes five times the expression fool in this whole discourse on boasting. And in every instance, he makes it known that he doesn't want to be a fool. Because he spoke the truth, he can't really be a fool. Being a fool undermines the cause of Christ. It brings blame on the church and calls into question his apostolic authority. So he doesn't really want to do this, but they forced him into the position. And you're going to be forced into positions too that you don't want to be sometimes. And it doesn't matter how old you are or how senior you are, how young you are. All of us are put in a position from time to time being criticized. I, mean, I, I was criticized when I was a little boy, and I'll never forget it. It's so impactful. I mean, it is so impactful when you endure what you believe is unfair criticism. You never forget it. I was a little boy, and we lived in Garland, Texas, and I forgot the name of the street, but we had this little club. I was new to the street. We had a little um, uh, broomsticks and tied pillowcases on it, and of course didn't get our parents' permission, but we drew things on it and ruined them. I didn't realize how important that was now. And then we would ride our bicycles down the street. And I'd only been in the club for a couple of weeks, and I remember them telling me, they having a little club meeting. I was six years old, having a little club meeting and saying, you know, you're not in the club anymore. Well, okay, well we don't like you. Really? I went on bawling to my mom. They kicked me out of the club. They didn't like me. I wasn't good enough for the club. I mean, I remember that, and that was, it was six years old. That was like 30 years ago, something like that. <laughs> It was a long time, and I still remember it after three decades. <laughs> of course, I had a great mom, and she put her arm around me and said, Hey, no, no, you're, you're good. It's their, it's their problem, not yours. And she took me got me ice cream. You remember that? Probably not. But it was impactful to me. <laughs> I mean, I remembered it. You remember things like that. These people are real people. Paul doesn't want to boast, but he's become foolish. He's had to do this boasting because the ones that should have defended him did not do it. And actually, he says, you should have commended me. I should have been commended by you. For in no respect was I inferior to the most eminent, even the eminent apostles, even though I'm a nobody. Well, apparently, the, this little phrase, even though I'm a nobody, that might have been what these critics had been saying. You, know, you got the apostles, and then you got Paul. You got the people in Jerusalem. You got Peter, James, and John. And then there's Paul. You know, Paul, he's really a nobody. So what Paul's saying is probably repeating something that they had said. Now, there is a lot of discussion as to who these super apostles were. Some people think that they were the false teachers. And that's certainly a possibility exegetically, but I don't think it's a probability. It's more likely that he is referring to the most eminent or the super apostles that were known by everybody from the mother church in Jerusalem. Probably Peter, James, and John. And it's very likely that the false teachers in Corinth had referenced these guys. In other words, saying, we're emissaries of Peter, James, and John. It's very likely that they were doing that. But it's also, it's equally as unlikely that Peter, James, and John had actually done that. Because by the time we get to here, there, there was no discussion. There's no problems between Peter and Paul. People always like to try to pick a fight between those two guys. There doesn't seem to be any problem at all between those guys. So it's, it's likely that Paul is just saying here, you should have stood up for me, guys, because I'm an apostle. And in no way am I inferior to any of those people that you truly respect or the people that these false apostles or these false teachers in Corinth 
were trying to attach their wagon to. I'm not in fear, even though I'm a nobody, but in verse 12, he lets them know he's not really a nobody. Uh, apparently, there's some discussion, not just about whether he is in the same league with these apostles, but whether he's an apostle at all. So in verse 12, he says, The signs of a true apostle were performed among you with all perseverance, by signs and wonders, with miracles. Romans chapter 15, verses 18 through 19 reads this way, For I will not presume to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me, resulting in the obedience of the Gentiles by word and deed, and watch this, in the power of signs and wonders, in the power of the Spirit, so that from Jerusalem and around about as far as Illyricum, which is Yugoslavia, I fully preach the gospel of Christ. There's a couple things I want you to see in this verse in Romans 15. The first thing is, he doesn't presume to speak of anything except what Christ has done through him. And the Apostle Paul knows what it's all about. It's, it's Christ's work that's being performed through individuals. Not Paul's work. It's Christ's work. It's Christ's message. And Paul recognizes that. And then he indicates that he has indeed done, when he writes to the Romans, which was written from Corinth, by the way, he indicates that he has done signs and wonders in the power of the Holy Spirit. In Acts chapter 15, verse 12, And the multitudes kept silent, and they were listening to Paul and Barnabas as they were relating what signs and wonders God had done through them. There's no doubt that Paul had done signs and wonders. Now, his letters don't describe them all. They hint at them. Of course, the book of Acts describes some of them. But he had done them. And these are what make an apostle an apostle. Anybody could come up and say, I represent Jesus. Anybody can do that, at least especially in that day. Or anybody could come up and say, listen, I'm the Messiah. So Jesus proved that he was the Messiah, not just by what he said, but by also by his works. We wonder sometimes why Jesus did miracles. He did miracles not primarily to alleviate suffering, which is shocking, isn't it? Jesus did alleviate suffering when he did miracles, but there were places that people were lined up to be healed, but he had to slip out in the middle of the night because he said, there's other people that I need to minister to. I didn't come solely or primarily to alleviate suffering. I came primarily to alleviate the biggest suffering a person has, and that's the problem of sin. He did miracles primarily to demonstrate that he was indeed who he said he was. Now see, there were other people, according to Josephus and other historians of the time, there were other people that claimed to be Messiah. And they could do it with their words, but they couldn't do it with their works. Now after Jesus, his close representatives that we call apostles had to demonstrate in some way that they really had a word from Jesus. The New Testament hadn't been written yet, hadn't been codified yet. So how do we know that this guy speaks for God and this guy doesn't? How did the Corinthians know? that Paul was speaking for God and these other opponents of Paul weren't. Because apparently they could do it better in terms of rhetoric. Apparently, that's what the Corinthians thought. They, they thought Paul couldn't speak his way out of a paper bag. So how do we judge? So Paul's saying, don't you remember I did these signs and wonders and miracles? Verse 13, for in what respect were you treated as inferior to the rest of the churches, except that I myself did not become a burden to you? Forgive me, this wrong. Now Paul's passionate, no, no doubt, and he's being ironic or if you prefer sarcastic here. He's doing it in love as he'll say in a moment. 
But this is an interesting verse because we know that when Paul was in Corinth, he didn't take any financial support from the Corinthians. He had a right to do it. And apostles, and this is what's kind of fuzzy about this in, in the Corinthians' minds, if someone was an apostle or representative of God, they were expected to receive help from the church that they were ministering to. And that's a biblical principle. But here Paul comes to Corinth, and he refuses any of their help. He makes tents when he's in Corinth. He apparently works days and preaches at night when he's in Corinth. And they totally misunderstood that. You see, it's, it's apparent that the false teachers that came in, they took help. They took the money. But Paul's saying, I'm not taking your money. And we can understand from the entirety of First and Second Corinthians why he didn't. He didn't want to take a dime from them because he knew that their spiritual life wasn't such that they could give the money without strings. Or that they could give the money without saying, yeah, you know, he's all right, but we probably paid him too much. You know, Paul wasn't going to have any of that. He did accept money. He accepted money from the churches of Macedonia. We know that. And he most likely accepted money from the church in Antioch because they're the ones that sent him out in the first place. But he wouldn't accept money from the Corinthians, and they took that wrongly. You talk about a bunch that just twists things around. That was the Corinthians. So instead of saying, hey, thanks a lot, because actually by not accepting money from us, you're giving money to us because it's an alley that we don't have to have. We could spend that on something else. Instead of being grateful to him, they were claiming that he wasn't really an apostle because he didn't take money. Isn't that crazy? We think it's crazy. They didn't see it was crazy. And that's why Paul says, well, forgive me. Forgive me this wrong that I'm not taking money from you. Oh, he's, he's passionate here for certain. In verses 14 through 18, Paul is going to mention previous visits and prepare the way for a coming visit. Here, for this third time, I'm ready to come to you, and I will not be a burden to you, for I do not seek what is yours but you. For children are not responsible to save up for their parents, but parents for their children. And then in verse 15, and I will most gladly spend and be spent for your souls. For if I love you the more, am I to be loved the less? He's already kind of got his jab in, but he wants them to know that he loves them. Just like when you disciplined your children when they were younger, you, you might have sent them to their room or you might have been of that barbaric generation that gave a swat on the bottom. I'm not sure. <laughs> I just. But either way, didn't you talk to them afterwards? And didn't you make sure that they understood you know, the only reason you were disciplining them is because you loved them? If, if a person loves his child, he'll discipline them. If they hate the child, they'll not discipline them because they don't care how they turn out. And whatever way you do it, you do want the child to make sure that they know that you love them. And that's what Paul's doing here. He's had to come down pretty hard on them. And so he takes a brief break and lets them know in verses 14 and 15 that he really does love them. During his first visit to Corinth, Paul founded the church, and he stayed with tent makers, Priscilla and Aquila. We learned that from Acts chapter 18, verses 1 through 4. The second visit that Paul made to Corinth was the visit that we call the painful visit. We've referenced that several times, and it's a visit that he doesn't really want to repeat. It's true that after that initial visit in Corinth, which lasted about 18 months, the one where he founded the church, he had told them. And he's going to come back and visit them several times. 
and he was never able to do it because circumstances change. If, if you'll recall, it's been several months, I know, but we considered that at the beginning of our study of 2 Corinthians. They were all upset about that. Paul just says, I'm sorry, but the Lord led me other places. I'm going to get to you. I'm going to be there. When he finally comes, he has to make a painful visit and not a good one. He had not burdened them before when he came, and he didn't intend to be a burden to them now. He has asked them to put aside this money for the church at Jerusalem. He's not asking them to put aside any money for him. He's still not going to take any money from them. So they just need to get over that part about if he's really an apostle, he'll take money. Well, he'll take money from people that are spiritual enough to give him the money. The money's got to come from the right place. And at this point, Paul didn't think that the Corinthians were spiritual enough to give that money. So for the third time, I'm ready to come to you. I'm not going to be a burden. I do not seek what is yours, but I seek you. Now, isn't that beautifully put? I don't want your money. I don't want your car. I don't want your refrigerator. I want you because God wants you. You see, Paul is, is kind of turned from the divinely sanctioned sarcasm for ever so brief a time, and he's letting them know, I love you. He's given them the spanking, and now he's got them sitting in the chair, and he's explaining to them exactly why he gave them the spanking. I love you. I don't want your money. I've robbed other churches to come and minister here. He'll put it that way. I don't want your money. I want you. And then he says this interesting phrase, for children are not responsible to save up for their parents, but parents for their children. Now this is in no way indicating that a child shouldn't take care of an elderly parent. That's not what this is indicating at all. He's just saying the norm is that people end up normally, now not everybody, but normally they end up having a, some sort of estate or, or some sort of nest egg that when they pass away then it's passed down to the children. That's the normal way to do it. Uh, this is not, this word children, by the way, isn't necessarily a little child. There was a term for that, pidos, but this is a different term, technon, which could be a child of any age. And, in fact, Julius Caesar, the last words that he spoke after being stabbed in the Roman Forum were not et tu brute. That was Shakespeare. Uh, actually, what historians record as Caesar's last words were kaisu technon, and those were spoken to a man named Brutus, who, who uh, was one of the last people to stab Caesar. And, and after Brutus stabs him, Caesar doesn't fight anymore. He just gives up. None of the wounds would have probably been fatal in and of themselves. But when Brutus stabbed him, stabbed him in the groin, Caesar says, Kai su technon, which means, and you, my child? Which has led a lot of people in Rome, at least it led a lot of people in Rome in the, in the first century B.C. to think that perhaps Brutus was fathered by Julius Caesar. But that doesn't necessarily follow it at all here. It just means that Brutus and Julius Caesar were very close, they had the relationship of father and son. And when, when um, Brutus stabs him, he calls him his technon. And that's the word that Paul is using here. But he's just saying the norm is that you're not supposed to be taking care of me. I'm supposed to be taking care of you. I'm your spiritual father. So you don't have to take care of me. Let me get you to where you need to be. I don't want your money. I want you. And this is an expression of love on the apostle Paul's part. And he said, I most gladly spend and be spent for you. He's saying, I would give my life for you. I already have given you a part of me. And it's much more valuable than any money that you could give me. Paul's already said in another place, he's well supplied. He's eating. 
God's provided for him. He's not going to compromise his integrity or his message to take money from people he shouldn't be taking money from. They weren't worthy to give money. Isn't that interesting? You really need to be walking in fellowship with God before you should give an offering at all. It's an act of worship. You don't get to buy your way into heaven. You don't get to buy your way into fellowship. And it's not just doing your duty. If, if ever, when, when the offering plate is passed, and you're pulling out a check or you're pulling out cash or whatever it in, uh, may, may be, and, and there's reluctance on your part, and you're thinking, doggone it, I'd really like to buy lunch with this. I really wanted this for a down payment on a car. You thought of that before, couldn't you? I, just, <laughs> I recognize that laugh all the way on the other side of the room. You may as well keep it because it wasn't spiritual giving. It needs to be joyfully given, as Paul has said earlier in this letter. But he wants to do all of this in love. I think back to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 8. Having this fond affection for you, we were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel, but our lives. Because you've become very dear to us. You see, Jesus loved you. Still does. And what did he ultimately give for you? His life, right? The apostles loved those that they ministered to. And they poured their lives out for the people. A pastor should love you. If he, if he doesn't, he's not much of a pastor. And you pour your life out for the people that you're ministering to. Regardless of the response. Think of Jesus. The response was pretty poor, don't you think? At least until the resurrection. He was rejected, he was despised, he was forsaken. According to Isaiah 53. But he went through with it, he still spent his life. The apostles... They had a pretty rough go. They weren't received with, a, with an emperor's triumphant welcome much of the time. Yet they poured their lives out for the people that they ministered to. And if that's true of an, our Lord himself and those who represent him, the, the apostles and modern day pastors, shouldn't it be true of you with your family and with your friends? Is that what you're really doing in your marriage? Are you spending and being spent? on another person or a group of people, your children? Well, of course you are. You know exactly what Paul is talking about here. It's just a matter of making, it's another way of putting it, is I made these sacrifices for you. I've given myself to you. Think of the mother. In the middle of the night, a young mother. Middle of the night, she hasn't gotten hardly any sleep all day because she's running around trying to take care of this newborn. She just needs a few hours, doesn't she? Many of you have been in that position, haven't you? Just a few hours, that's all I need. If I could get just six hours of uninterrupted sleep, I could make tomorrow. And then three o'clock in the morning, what do you hear? Uh, uh, coming from the other room. What happens? Mom jumps up, throws her bathrobe on, goes down there and nurses that baby. Falling asleep while she does it and doesn't complain to anybody. I really haven't heard. A mother, a loving mother, ever complained about getting up in the middle of the night and taking care of that child? Never. Because that's what moms do. They pour their life into their children. And dads do too in just different ways. And that's what Paul's saying I'm doing here. I poured my life into you. I don't want anything from you. I'm the one that's supposed to be given to you. So don't worry about that. And then in verse 15 at the end, he said, If I love you the more, am I to be loved less by you? Paul's a human being. He's not a figurehead. He's not a cut-out model. He's not a statue. He does have feelings. We don't like to talk about that, but he does have them. And he's saying, I'm loving you all the more. And really, this could be a question in, in this way. I love you. 
and I'm loving you more and more, and I'm showing you more and more all the time. What's this hostility back toward me? Where's all the hostility coming from? That's all he's saying here. And now in verse 16, he does become confrontational again. So the respite is short, but his opponents had forced him to do this because he's speaking out of love. They're not speaking out of love, and they apparently have charged the Apostle Paul with being a little sneaky, a little underhanded. And so he, Paul says in verse 16, Be that as it may, I did not burn you myself. Nevertheless, crafty fellow that I am, I took you in by deceit. Again, he's repeating what they've said. He's not, he's not admitting to be a crafty fellow. He's just saying, oh, oh I'm, a real, I'm a real sneaky guy. That's what they were saying about him. And then in verse, 16, or verse um, 17, he says, Certainly I have not taken advantage of you through any of those whom I have sent to you, have I? Now, there's a lot of speculation. What is he talking about? It's possible. It's possible that Paul's saying or referring to an accusation that the opponents had given that this offering that had been being taken up, maybe somehow Paul had kind of helped himself to some of it. Furthest thing from the truth, but people can make any accusation they want to make, and other people don't make them validate that accusation. Now, if there's a point of application here, or the, the, the first and, and primary one is when we defend ourselves, we need to do it in love. But there's a second, secondary application that I don't want you to leave here as we're just about ready to close. I, do, I don't want you to leave here missing this point. If someone comes and tells you something, and you just have any inkling at all, about, especially about somebody else, assassinates their character, they come to you and they talk trash about somebody else, and you take it and you believe it and you absorb it into your soul and you repeat it without checking it out, guess who's just as wrong as the first guy? Maybe even more so. Something needs to be validated. If it is true that these people were claiming, as many New Testament commentators believe, that they were claiming that the Apostle Paul had taken some of this offering money, well, where's the validation for that? Where's the proof? Where's the evidence? If you don't have any evidence for that, then maybe you ought not to say that. And that's what the Corinthians should have told these false teachers. How do you know that? I've asked people that before. This person did this, and they said, they were you there? No. Who told you? Well, I don't remember. You probably ought not to be repeating it then. How do you know that they did that? So when you're on the end of the receiving end where you're listening to the criticism about somebody else, you need to make sure it's true before either you believe it, and especially before you spread it. Don't get locked up into this celebrity shit culture that I began by talking about today where the entertainment tonight doesn't care if it's a good story or a bad story. We need to be above that as Christians. And if it can't be validated as juicy as it might be, you know what I'm talking about, don't get on the phone and start repeating it. I wish that we would tell people about Jesus as quickly as we would tell people about gossip that we hear about somebody else. The gospel would be spread worldwide by now. But the crafty fellow is what they had labeled him. And this is... Confrontational, but remember he's speaking of love. Earlier in this letter, in chapter 7, he had said, We've wronged nobody. We've corrupted no one. We've defrauded no one. So finally he says, Certainly I've not taken advantage of you through any of those I've sent to you, have I? The answer is no. I urged Titus to go and sent the brother with him. This is one we've talked about before. We don't know this guy's name, but apparently somebody they recognized. Titus did not take advantage of you, did he? Did we not conduct ourselves in the same spirit 
and walk with the same step. So Titus and I are walking lockstep. He didn't take advantage of you. I didn't take advantage of you. So Paul has defended himself. And yes, he did use some divinely sanctioned rough language, sarcasm. He only did it to get their attention. He had become foolish in this longer section, but only because they compelled him to. He didn't want to. It wasn't, it wasn't part of his personality, but because they compelled him to in order to get their attention, he had to take this tactic. But remember, all the time he's doing it, he's doing it in love. I'm sure you felt at one point in time in your life the rough edge of slander. If you're a human being and you're past six years old, <laughs> I'm sure you have. In fact, sometimes the younger that you are, the more deeply the criticism hurts. It's tough. I mean, high school, I think, is a place, or junior high, high school, those ages, say between 13 and 18, those ages are brutal years. I mean, brutal years for criticism. So if you're in that age group, don't think that this is just for somebody else. This is for you, too. I mean, you're criticized as well. And it's far from pleasant. Nobody likes it. To be unfairly robbed of someone's reputation is a painful thing. We spend a lifetime building a reputation. And then in a moment, it can be trashed for no reason at all. It can be stolen away in a second by vicious talk. And the natural reaction to that is going to be anger. But that's not the right reaction. Even though it's anger and defense, that's not the right reaction. Because it's hard to be loving when you're angry. This is not the easiest thing to do. But Paul is showing us here, by example, that you can respond aggressively, but you must respond lovingly. Sometimes it is tough to know when to defend yourself and when just to let it go. And the only thing I can tell you this morning is that there are no rules for this. You, you just must be sensitive enough to the leading of the Spirit in your life to know when to say something and when to not. When to sign the letter, you may be right. Or when to say, well, I like the way I present the gospel better than the way you don't. But the only way you're going to know that is from the Holy Spirit. But one thing I can tell you for certain today, that if you choose to defend yourself, it must be done in love. Heavenly Father, this is a tough thing. It's hard to be criticized by another, especially another of your children, another of our brothers and sisters, but it happens. And I pray that you give us each wisdom from your indwelling Holy Spirit as to when to defend ourselves and when to let it go. And, and may we do it if we do. If we do have to defend ourselves, may we do it in love. May we speak the truth in love no matter what we're speaking. And hence prove ourselves to be capable and legitimate ambassadors for you. And we'll ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.